got your Bible apps, you can um, open them to Luke 10, 38-42, at the home of Martha and Mary. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So while I was preparing for this sermon at home, my five-year-old daughter Maya came up to me complaining about her four-year-old sister, Misha. She said, Mommy, Misha isn't helping me clean up. And so I turn around and I see Misha sprawled across the couch, her legs dangling over the edge, her arms out wide with a single toy in her hand. And she sits upright and she goes, No, Mommy, I am helping, holding the toy up as proof. And so I start laughing and uh, Maya goes, What's so funny? I said, well, actually, Maya, I'm reading this story in the Bible about two sisters that are just like you and Misha. It's one sister is doing all the work. She's doing everything. And the other sister isn't doing anything at all. And so the sister that's doing all the work goes up to Jesus and tells on her, doesn't that sound like you and Misha? And just as I was about to launch into a teaching moment in true Sunday school teacher style, Mike chimes in, my husband Mike, he chimes in from the kitchen, and he says, oh, just like you, mommy, sitting there on the computer doing nothing while I'm in the kitchen making dinner all by myself? <laughs> and so, without wanting to argue with him that actually I've been watching the kids all day, and I'm not doing nothing, I'm working, preparing a sermon, and being a really good Mary, you know, listening to God and reading the Bible, I very, very smugly just stood up and went to go and help him. You do what you do, right? So I tell you this story today because I want to talk about comparison and the harm in comparison and how it creates competition. So I'm guilty of comparing my and Misha, my daughters. I'll say things like, Misha is a risk taker. Maya is much more cautious. Or I'll say, Maya's a um, very rational. Misha's a dreamer, and I did it with this story earlier. Maya will do anything. She'll comply in a heartbeat, but Misha is like pulling teeth to get her to clean up. Now because I compare them, they compare themselves to one another. Misha will show up about how many vegetables she can eat because she knows Maya hates vegetables. And Maya will show up about all the cartwheels she can do and how she does the splits, and then I'll have to clap extra hard to, when Misha tries to donkey cook her way over. She's giving me a near heart attack because I think she's about to land on her head. And they're not the only ones that do it. We do it too. We as adults, we do this all the time. We like to make comparisons and talk about who is better. And now I find this especially true of women. We like to compare our bodies. We compare our outfits, our appearances. We do it with celebrities when we compare who wore it best. We compare Monica, Rachel, and Phoebe from Friends. We compare celebrities like Brittany and Christina. I'm really showing my age here. We compare Tyra Banks and Naomi Campbell. We even compare the Kardashian sisters. Recently, when Prince Harry 
married Meghan Merkel, we compared her to Kate Middleton. Don't lie, I know you didn't. <laughs> We're always comparing women and asking everyone to size up who is better. But why do we do that? Why do we do that to each other? Why do we pit ourselves against each other, creating competition? So I did some research, and I found an article that wrote about why women compete against one another. And they outlined two ways that women indirectly express aggression towards one another. And one is through self-promotion, and the other one through competitor degradation. So self-promotion looks like, hey everyone, look at me. Look how great I am. Look at all the wonderful things that I'm doing. It's making themselves look better than everyone else. Competitor degradation is a cattiness that you might hear when you hear one woman undercut another. So she might say something like, oh, she doesn't do as good a job as I do. Or she might show pity and say, oh, it's too bad, she's just not as good as everyone else. And Martha does this. She self-promotes. She shows that I'm doing everything. And then she degrades Mary. Look. She's doing nothing. Tell her to help me. So then, if you've heard this story growing up, you were probably told that Jesus rebuked Martha and told her that she should be more like Mary, who has chosen what is better. The moral of the story that I learned was that I needed to be more like Mary. Be less of a doer, like Martha, getting involved, getting distracted by many different things. I needed, instead, to spend more time listening to God and learning about God. And I'm, so later on that evening, I read the story to Maya and Misha because I became very curious. And it's pretty hilarious how the children's Bible depicts this story. It makes Mary's actions seem more valuable and more desirable. She seems like a really nice woman. But Martha, I mean, look at this angry and annoying <laughs> picture of Martha doing housework, which, by the way, is another assumption that we've made. Who else was told, when you've heard this story, who else was told that Martha was distracted by housework? Put your hands up. So that assumption was made through an interpretation that was made through a lens which assumed that at that time, that's all a woman could be distracted by doing. That's all she could be doing was housework. But the word that was used, the Greek word in the original translation, the Greek word used to describe what she was doing, the word diakonia actually refers to both housework, domestic, domestic duties, and ministry. So she really quite possibly doing, be doing the ministry of Jesus at that time. Doing tasks that were pertaining to his ministry. Anyway, our takeaway from this story, as far as a traditional interpretation, is that Martha should lay down her work. That she should take up listening and learning like Mary. That somehow, what Martha did is not as important. It's not as valuable. That there's more power and authority to be gained from learning and listening instead of getting distracted and busying ourselves with tasks. And I get it. That makes total sense. But it still annoys me that Jesus uses this moment to value Mary over Martha. I mean, come on, Jesus. Isn't it bad enough that we compare one another? one another, but now because you do it, everybody else does it too. And it annoys me even more because I'm a mocker. I'm a doer. And so I read this story and I think, well, that just invalidates everything that I do, doesn't it? But we miss what's going on deeper when we get stuck on that. 
we miss from this old interpretation, which, by the way, is an interpretation that's still being taught today. We miss what the focus, when we focus on just Martha having a fit and Jesus rebuking her, we miss what Jesus is saying when he says that Mary has chosen what is best and it will not be taken from her. We miss what Jesus is doing in that moment. What we miss is Jesus is affirming Mary in her ministry. Jesus is affirming Mary's place as a disciple in a time when women were typically allowed to be students of religion. Jesus is upending what's expected of women here. Jesus is seeing the worth of women learning and listening so that one day they too can be teachers. He's given her a space of value and importance. Here's what we did with that thought. Instead, instead of recognizing that, we made it okay to make comparisons. We made it okay to rank our faith practices. And, we made it, and then we created hierarchy. We made it okay to value one ministry over the other. We made it okay to value one practice over the other. We made it okay to value one woman over the other. Now, I don't know what happens after this exchange. I don't know if any other conversation takes place. I don't know if Martha continues being annoyed, doing all the duties that she's being distracted by, or if Mary stands up and starts to help her. The next time we meet Martha is when she comes running looking for Jesus after her brother Lazarus had died. So Martha and her sister send for Jesus when Lazarus is sick, but he doesn't make it in time to heal him. By the time he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. So let's go to John 11, 23-27 and read what it says. When Martha Mary, sorry, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So note again that once again, Martha's temperament is being compared to Mary. Mary did the dutiful thing to stay home and mourn. But here, here's Martha running around and doing again. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha's got to have a lot of faith here. In this point, believing that Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead because it's been four days. So she is pressing Jesus. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She thinks that when Jesus is talking about Lazarus rising again, that he's talking about the afterlife. But she says, no, I know he's going to re resurrect again then, but that's not what I'm talking about. I want him alive right here, right now. And so she's pushing Jesus, pressing him. And what follows is where Jesus affirms Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So Jesus meets Martha where she needs it most, by affirming her need for more answers, by asking her the question, do you believe this? Now, if you read in chapters and chapters before this, the, the issue of belief keeps coming up. 
So it's a big deal what she does when she makes this declaration, when she says that she does believe. She makes a declaration of her faith. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because we know that when the disciple Peter, he did the same, when he proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and what some denominations have done, they've actually made a day to celebrate this. They dedicated a day that they celebrate year after year, and they call it the Confession of Peter. But there's no Confession of Martha. It's never mentioned again, even though it's a big deal. And then Jesus does it again. When he's about to roll the stone from Lazarus's tomb, Martha says, but Lord, it's going to stink if you roll that stone because he's been dead for four days. Martha doesn't get it. How is it possible that you can raise him from the dead when his body has been rotting for four days? And Jesus meets her once again, affirms her questioning and her need for answers. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He doesn't rebuke Martha for not mourning. He doesn't rebuke her for running and looking for him, even when he was already on his way over. He doesn't rebuke her for questioning and seeking answer and having this need for reasoning. He affirms her hope and her faith and invites her to trust. In the previous story, Jesus validates Mary. He says, Mary has chosen what is better, and I wish I could enter in brackets for her. It will not be taken from her. He sees her gifting, and he sees her ministry, and he validates that. Both these women are very different in how they operate, very different in how they react, and he affirms them both. He sees both their different needs and both their different reactions and validates them. And while we've only really traditionally championed Mary in this story, there's actually room to celebrate them both. And Jesus has done that. So then why, why, why for the last 2,000 years have we valued Mary over Martha? Why have we pitted them against each other and forced us to choose the better one? And I think it's because it's our human nature to categorize things into good and bad and place value and worth on certain things more than others. I think it's hard for us to see both Mary and Martha being valuable. And even the writers of the Bible have, find this, have the same problem. You don't see these stories in the same book. They're in two different books. Luke writes one and John writes the other because they couldn't place these stories together. They couldn't see the value in both these women. They had a hard time making space for them both. But the truth is, there is indeed value in, what, in Mary's ministry and value in Martha's ministry. They have so much more to offer beyond the bickering and the rivalry that we read about. There's a story here of two sisters, two women working in ministry, being a beacon for their community, being a place for people to come and fellowship and be with Jesus. What they've done here, essentially, is they've created a house church. But we don't recognize that. Instead of celebrating and recognizing how these women have cultivated this space, we've been distracted by boxing them in as a woman distracted by housework and a woman sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
and not seeing them as anything more than that. Instead, we've made the models of what we should be more and less like. We've taken the message that there's only room for one, especially if you've only looked at one story, which is the one in Luke. What if we started believing differently? What if we started believing and operating as if there was room for them both? That there was room for both Mary and Martha, and we stopped comparing them, valuing one over the other? What if we started doing that in our own lives? What if we as women, instead of competing against one another, we valued what each of us brought to the table? What if we, instead of having this female rivalry that's driven by, and I'm going to name it, a very patriarchal idea of power that says you have to be better than everyone else, that there can only be one leader, one person on top, one person in power. What if instead we shared our power with one another? I see your faces. You're going, that sounds really ideal, Mira, but that's not how the world works. And you're right. From standardized testing, to competing for jobs, to even the dating scene, it's a competition out there. But here's the thing. This cutthroat competition where we pit women against each other, it hurts us more than it hurts our male counterparts. Statistically, more women measure their self-worth based on what others think of them. So that if we're self-promoting and we're undercutting another woman, then we are devaluing them. And so they devalue themselves. And this isn't necessarily isolated to just women. We all are hurting each other when we compare ourselves to one another. We are hurting each other when we compete against one another. We are hurting each other when we think in order to succeed or rise to the top, to gain power and authority, we have to do it at the expense of another's worth. Our drive to be the best or to come out on top can inadvertently take away someone else's work. So then, what if we redefine power? A few weeks ago, Jonathan talked about redefining the word dominion and reclaiming it. What if we redefine power as something that isn't gained by competing against or suppressing another? What if holding power meant that when being given a platform, I could take other women alongside me? What if in holding some power, I said to another woman, here, take up space next to me. There's room for both of us. I can share my power, or I can uplift you. I can champion you. And you saw it earlier this morning as we prayed in Jennifer and Maribeth. We shared, we shared this platform. Now we talked about abundance in our last series. What if we believed in an abundance of power that everyone could partake in? Where that platform could be shared, where everyone's contribution was valued? And I'm not just talking to women here, I'm talking to men as well. In changing how we conceive what's valuable and worthy and who holds power, we need you to change your perception of that too. We need you to broaden your idea of what power might be like and see that power is something that can be shared. We need you to come alongside us in seeing that there's value in the diversity of everyone's contribution. Has anyone seen the show Grey's Anatomy? Come on, put your hands up. You don't have to be embarrassed. 
I say it because it's my favorite show on the planet. So it's a medical drama, and its producer, Shauna, Shauna Rhines, credits much of her success to her mentor, Deborah Martin Chase. Deborah Martin Chase is a movie and TV producer, and she's the first African-American uh, producer to have a deal with a major studio. After winning a spot in Columbia Pictures' executive training program, she gets promoted to being the executive assistant to Frank Price, who is one of the top producers in Columbia Pictures. From there, she meets Denzel Washington, who hires her to run his production company. She then starts working with him on movies, and she helps him produce the film Hank Aaron Chasing the Dream, which wins multiple awards. From there, she starts producing her own movies. She produces Cinderella, not the cartoon, the movie starring Whitney Houston. She produces The Princess Diaries and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which were all big deal movies when I was growing up as a teen. <laughs> so why am I mentioning this? Because both Denzel Washington and Frank Price championed Deborah Martin Chase. They didn't see her as competition. They saw her as talent worthy of investing in. She then later went on to mentor Shonda Rhimes who then produced the greatest TV drama of all time. <laughs> I think so anyway. So Deborah Martin Chase didn't see Shonda Rhimes as competition either. She mentored her, providing guidance and support. She championed her by getting her this gig to, to produce a sequel to The Princess Diaries. Then Shonda Rhimes went on to create Grey's Anatomy and she conceptualized this show as a stance against racism. She very intentionally created a racially diverse cast, and she uses this show as a platform to raise awareness of social issues, including racial inequality, gender inequality, domestic violence, AIDS, police brutality, transgender rights, and even the issues of healthcare for women of color. Most recently, she created a recurring character who wore a hijab, who wasn't related to terrorism or national security. She was just a medical intern. Shonda Rhimes used her power to champion minorities and change the way that they were seen. This is what happens when you empower women, when you use your platform to empower and champion her. And you can do this and empower other diverse groups, other minority groups, groups of people of color, those that identify as LGBT, those that are not as able as we might, we might define as being able-bodied. You can take it a step further when you provide mentorship and sponsorship, because when you do that, you give them the best possible chance. Jesus championed Martha by answering to her need for reasoning. He didn't dismiss her. Jesus championed Mary by inviting her to listen and learn, not by telling her, you really should go and help your sister. He saw worth and value in what both these women brought to the table. And so I challenge us today to move away from seeing our counterparts as competition. I challenge us, I challenge us to move away from the perception that power is finite. I challenge us today to instead empower one another and to champion one another.
Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you, God, that you created us all so differently with our different giftings in mind. So I ask this God to see one another as, as how you see us and see the gifting in each one of us. I ask this God to make us very aware of whom we can power and whom we can champion. God, to not be afraid of competition, but see that we can all share this power, share our platform with one another. I pray that you show us how to do this intentionally this week. In your name we pray, amen.